if there's anything I want people to come away with is a sense of black American history and the role that both Zionism, both the ideology has played, the black and Jewish connection, why that synergy has been so important, uh, why it has been so consistent throughout the centuries, understanding some of why the anti-Zionist fight is so strong. There has been a consistent need to take the black historical struggle for justice and connect it to a pro-Palestinian slash anti-Israel ethos. And our children are being indoctrinated with this ideology at levels never before seen, um, and it's only increasing. I want to dispel those myths and truly give a real context and history to this Israel's relationship with Africa, the black and Jewish connection, why it was so important and why it will be even more important going forward. This is a Jewish TV channel presentation. Welcome to Talking Point, where controversial subjects are brought into sharp focus. Conversations with JTVC show host Laura Kessler comes up next. Welcome to Talking Point. I'm Laura Kessler. Pastor Dumasani Washington is the founder and CEO of the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel. He's also the former Diversity Outreach Coordinator for the over 10 million member Christians United for Israel. Dumasani is a pastor, professional musician, and a graduate of the San Francisco Conservatory of Music. He's also an author whose latest book is the second edition of Zionism and the Black Church, why standing with Israel will be a defining issue for Christians of color in the 21st century. While on staff with Christians United for Israel, Dumasani organized multi-ethnic Christian support for Israel from across the country and helped engage the many Israel supporters and honorary members from South Africa, Zimbabwe, Togo, Ghana, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Kenya, Morocco, and more. Pastor Dumasani is also the creator of the Mizrahi Project, a short film project that tells the story of the over 850,000 Jewish refugees from North America and the Middle East. As part of his effort to initiate the Mizrahi Project, Dumasani was featured in the 2016 PragerU video, Why Are There Still Palestinian Refugees?, which has received millions of views worldwide and can be seen on our website in the Act Fast page this month. Dumasani is also the founder and director of the Hebrew Project Artists, a music group that performs gospel music with Hebrew and English lyrics in an artistic stand with Israel and the Jewish people. He and his wife, Valerie, have been married 34 years and have six children and three grandchildren, and we're really honored to have him with us today. Welcome, Pastor Washington. Thank you, Laura, for having me today. It's great to be with you, and I'm really excited to dive into everything. I'd like to begin asking everybody if you could just tell us a little bit about how your own spiritual identity was formed when you were young, and how exactly you came to be a Christian Zionist activist. Well, um, so I was born in Little Rock, Arkansas in 1967, late 60s which was still then very much the segregated South, though I grew up in California because um, my parents moved from Little Rock to San Francisco um, when I was still not quite even one years old. 
Um, we were faithful members of King Solomon Baptist Church in North Little Rock, uh, where my parents and my family were very, very active. My dad is a deacon, and he sang in the men's chorus, and my mom served on what's called the matron board and, and the youth ministry and all of those things. So I was literally... Uh, came up in the church, um, was a musician at a young age as well. So I played from the time I was young, once again in there in California, as I'm getting older. Uh, and I became a Christian at a very young age. Um, my, our parents, I'm the youngest of seven children. Uh, now we're very active in church and, uh, and scriptures and music and all those things, but they bought us Bibles at a young time yeah, when we were very young. So I began to read uh, my Bible when I was in elementary school and for reasons that I did not understand at the time was always, I was gravitated to the Old Testament, right, to the Tanakh. Uh, I read the New Testament as well, but I was fascinated uh, even more so by the stories of the patriarchs and, and about David and and about, you know, the Goliath and all of those things. And so they just kind of captivated me. So for me, uh, there was always this intriguing, uh, there's something always intriguing about Israel about the Hebrews, about the, you know, the, these stories. Um, and so it, uh, that was kind of like a, a, a small way in which there was this Israel connection that was there. Um, my senior year in high school, I still remember to this day, November 1984, was Operation Moses. Uh, the Israeli government working with uh, the Ethiopian Jews who were had crossed over in Sudan, of course, and they were uh, bringing them back secretly to, the, to their homeland after a millennia of separation. And I saw those pictures uh, on the TV when I was very young. That's back in the day where there's only three networks. And this was World News Tonight. I believe it was Peter Jennings. My mom was watching, and I was mm-hmm. having out to play ball with my friends. And I remember before going out the front door, I turned and looked, and it was as if God was taking my head in his hand and making me look at this picture it was emblazoned in my mind. I didn't know what I was looking at because I knew nothing about the modern state of Israel. I knew nothing about the Ethiopian Jews. I, it, this was just it was pictures, but the pictures to this day, what, 40-something years, I still remember. Uh, I remember seeing an Ethiopian mom with her baby wrapped around her, and I remember seeing an older Ethiopian kissing the ground at Ben-Gurion Airport, and it just made an impression on me. It wasn't until years later that I would understand what it was I was looking at. So... Uh, there was this deep faith in the God of Israel as a Christian, a, big, a deep love for Jesus and the word of God, all of these things, right? Uh, but then uh, also this real um, intriguing, I wanted to know more about Israel as I got older. I wanted to know more about the Jewish roots of my faith, and that's kind of how my journey began. It, it, there was no nothing political about the whole Zionism or even the geopolitical reality until, again, later on. Uh, and, and I'll say this last thing, as I was raised to be very proud of my black American heritage, again, my, my family from the segregated South, my mom told me many stories about her high school, who, which she loved, and which amazing students and professionals came from there, right? Uh, there's a great deal of, of pride in terms of the success of our community, the cohesiveness of our communities and everything, uh, so that as I got older and I uh, would hear Israel demonizes a Jim Crow state, knowing full well that my parents experienced that, or an apartheid state, and I have South African family. I began to speak out both to debunk those lies, but also to defend what was the heritage of people who had actually experienced those things. So got a big mouth like my mom, and so I would talk a lot about it. Next thing you know, I'm speaking and talking across the country. 
I love that story about how it made such an early impression on you. There's a special connection between the black church and the story of Moses. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Well, when you when you talk about, um, especially in the, the black American community, uh, the the arc, and I talk about this in my book, Zionism in the Black Church, there's an arc. There's obviously there's not just one black American story, but there's an overarching story, which goes from slavery, obviously, the Jim Crow, segregation, you know, all, all these things to the modern era, right? Um, so when it came to black identity, uh, Christianity, church, the Hebrew scriptures, all of these things, the spirituals, the Negro spirituals uh, that were sung on the plantation and then after slavery uh, almost always had these Old Testament biblical themes. Go down Moses, Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, Elijah Rock. Uh, there were songs that were said in the New Testament as well. Uh, but there was this connection in terms of story and legacy that Harriet Tubman was called Moses because she was an abolitionist who led black people to freedom during um, the Underground Railroad. And so Moses then became that that synonymous uh, 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 term, if you will, for freedom, as well as the Hebrews, the entire redemption story there in Exodus um, during some may remember during the election season of 2008, Barack Obama referred to himself as, or his generation as the Joshua generation, referring to Dr. King's generation as the Moses generation. And so these things politically, culturally, songs, music, even in terms of hip hop culture, Lauryn Hill, one of my favorite hip hop albums of all time, uh, was called The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Several of her songs spoke about Jerusalem, spoke about Zion. So this was, something has been infused uh, in black history uh, from the beginning of our time on this continent, uh, and it continues to this day. So that's very much what that is, even in terms of churches named after biblical themes or, or Zion themes, the AME, Zion Church, which stands for the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which speaks to the, uh, the, the Christian community in, in Ethiopia. Uh, these things have, again, this goes back centuries uh, in terms of black community and still continues on to this day. Mm-hmm. And Bob Marley, too, saying yes, a lot about that. Um, Absolutely. When we spoke a few weeks ago about, we, we talked about the shared trauma of both the Israel and African diasporas, and I really love that you spoke about the importance of pride and being positive, not just the victimization and exile, which is what often gets emphasized. Can you talk about that and share that with our listeners? Yeah, we, we talk about that in the organization quite a bit, and I wrote about it in my book with our MC ambassadors, which I'm sure we'll probably touch on a little bit later on, these uh, representatives of organization that strengthen the tie between Israel and Africa and the black and Jewish community. Um, that there's nothing wrong with identifying a what, what you refer to as shared trauma, the like stories of dispossession, slavery, um, discrimination, all of those things is important to know one's history. Uh, but it is an, even more important to know one's history in context, to tell what we call the whole story. And we find that if the the negative, the traumatic, is all that is remembered, and is all that is emphasized, then it produces people of a victim mentality, those who only understand their history through the lens of dispossession and hatred or racism 
all of those things and not what their forebears did to both overcome and move on despite those things. Um, so there are many examples of this uh, in the black American community and countless examples of it within our, uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters in terms of going back to Exodus in, in terms of Egypt and on to the modern age, how the Jewish people, uh, the oldest hatred in the world is anti-Semitism. Uh, the Jewish people cast out of countries, um, uh, burnt out, dispossessed, all of those things, but somehow, some way, continuing to distinguish themselves and make contributions to humanity that have always outsized its small number. And so one of the stories uh, is one of my favorite stories. That I, we often tell, and I talk about this in my book as well, as just one small but important example of that, I talk about, I believe, in Chapter 5 or Chapter 6. Um, we talk about the example of Black Wall Street. Uh, Black Wall Street wasn't just an area in Tulsa, Oklahoma, those who know about that history, the Greenwood District, but it was an era uh, that went from the early 1900s, shortly after the First World War, all the way to the 1960s. These are black communities throughout the different parts of the country. South Chicago was one. There's also some in Philadelphia area in which there were black entrepreneurs and, uh, and there were communities that obviously were, were segregated because of, you know, uh, the hatred and those types of race laws, if you will, uh, but were very, very uh, functional, prosperous even. One of the most prosperous was the one that Booker T. Washington dubbed himself Negro Wall Street, which was Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was destroyed in a race massacre in 1921, May the 31st and June the 1st, over that two-day period. Uh, the other residents, uh, the other outlying residents because of an incident, and I talk about it in my book, there was a huge fight. Hundreds of black people were killed, and the entire town destroyed in less than two years. The surviving residents rebuilt it, having fought a two-year battle uh, against those who were trying to, after they had destroyed it, the black residents still owned the land, so they tried to actually take them to court in the county level and the state level. They fought this measure. They won in both uh, the county and the state level uh, and had rebuilt the entire town. It was even bigger and better, more prosperous after its destruction in 1921. Uh, and so, again, shared trauma is a good thing to, to understand, uh, but this is a story, for example, of something that was very traumatic, but then like a phoenix from the ashes, those black residents rise and rebuild which is a huge indicator uh, and, a, and a continued sub-theme of the black experience in America. I love that imagery of the phoenix rising from the ashes. Really, the diaspora is not just the exile and the suffering, but it's constant reinvention and success. Just like you said, there's a lot to be proud of. I think uh, Black Wall Street is also kind of a parallel to the Jewish people constantly reinventing themselves after leaving the Russian pogroms when they were excluded and had to create our own segregated businesses when Jews were not accepted in country clubs and other things. Yes. I want to switch gears now and talk about your organization. So what is IBSI and what led you to create it and what is an IBSI ambassador? So IBSI, IBSI stands for the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel. Um, it's an organization that I started in the summer of 2013. Um, I did so after visiting Israel for the first time uh, in December of 2012. I was a guest pastor 
as part of the African-American Pastors Tour with Christians United for Israel. I would go on later on to serve on staff with CUFI, Christians United for Israel, but I wasn't on staff at the time. And uh, as I was sharing earlier, this passion that I had as a, at a very young age uh, in terms of Israel and the scriptures and black history, and then I didn't mention this, but Pan-Africanism as well. I began to teach our children whom we homeschooled, all the different African states, something of a, of a Pan-African history. We talked about the different nations and all of those things. Um, I am um, in Israel in December 2012, I was praying at the Western Wall. Um, what I can only describe as uh, a, a very powerful divine moment for me in which I felt God really placed on my heart to strengthen the tie between the black Jewish communities and also between Africa and Israel. Didn't know how I was going to do that, had no idea. So when I returned to the state to begin to research, and I knew some things, but I had to educate myself on many other things. I knew about Dr. King's pro-Israel stance, uh, but I did not know the depth of it. Um, and other things as well, like the pro-Israel activity of the black uh, civil rights community after Dr. King's death, all the way to the to the 70s, and by Rustin A. Philip Randolph Basic, which was an organization called, uh, which stands for Black Americans to Support Israel Committee, um, which is one of my inspirations for starting the organization. Uh, seeing the black leadership response to the demonization of Israel in the United Nations by the Palestine Liberation Organization, how there were full-throated support for Israel and for peace, but that history has buried those things in large part because, um, unfortunately, we live in a time of great anti-Semitism, and so when it comes to the fair telling of Israel's story, uh, and particularly with support like from the black community, those things aren't really discussed, and because of that, they're not really well-known 50-plus years later since the 60s and since Dr. King's death, obviously. So we started the organization as a response to what God had placed on our heart. It's not a religious organization, though I am a pastor. And we deal with biblical themes in terms of history and all of those things, but we also deal with the geopolitics of the region. We deal with the cultural issues. We deal with history um, and, and what's happening even now. We get into some thorny issues in our organization, like the anti-Semitism on the college campuses and, and, and where it stems from and those types of things. So that's our organization. I I, I spoke for about a year lecturing and, and, and hosting events for about a year between 2013 and 2014 after the organization was begun. Um, I was asked to come on staff of Christians United for Israel, which I did in the fall of 2014. So IBSI or IPSI still existed, but more in the social media space. We did some writing and those types of things, but no more of the events that I was doing the first year. Eventually, my son uh, took the reins as the executive director, in which he has been for the last several years, um, and then I would just do some work behind the scenes, part of the board, but it was in um, May of 2021 was my last month officially at uh, KUFI, and I returned full-time to IBSI uh, to begin to lead the efforts uh, again. Uh, particularly in the wake of May 2020, which was the death of George Floyd and the beginning, the beginnings of the COVID uh, pandemic and these things that the listeners here know very well were feeding into an anti-Semitism in the West uh, like never before, uh, which those things have nothing to do with the Jewish people, obviously, in terms of the George Floyd or COVID. But, of course, Israel haters and Jew haters will take any opportunity 
to attack Israel and the Jewish people, and this was what was happening. I returned to the organization, and one of the things that we started was our peace initiative. That is an acronym for Plan for Education, Advocacy, and Community Engagement. And people can learn more about it on ibsi.org. But it is an, a, a, an initiative in which we recruit young black men and women from across the country. We place them on a nine-month journey. Each month, starting from September, the nine months of their particular journey will come to a close next month as we head to Israel. But nine-month journey in which we each month come together virtually and we do uh, unpack different uh, subjects that have to do with Israel, ancient Israel, modern Israel, Israel-Africa, the black-Jewish relationship, the United Nations, about 16 different classes that we actually deal with, and we do one or a couple of them at a time each month, and we take two trips. One I call December is the motherland and June is the holy land. So we went to South Africa in December for 10 days, had an amazing time in which it was a time of discovery, a time of, of just um, just awakening, right? We learned about the truth of the apartheid struggle. <clears throat> we learned about many different cultures that are there in South Africa, so many different things, the Jewish communities connection there for all a long, long time, the Jewish community's role in helping fight against apartheid and how they were praised for that by Nelson Mandela himself. And then in uh, what is right now, uh, just less than two weeks, we will head to Israel, uh, do the Holy Land part of that, in which we will continue that part of the study, learning about the Israeli uh, nation, the Jewish people, the whole the diaspora, all of these things. And these uh, IBSI ambassadors will become uh, what we call the hub of black Jewish synergy in their cities across the country. Uh, in which they will continue to emphasize the strong uh, relationship between Israel and Africa, the black and Jewish communities. And they are just the first group. Um, our plan is to, by Juneteenth, which is in a few weeks, recruit the next group uh, that will continue. And our goal is to have some, I believe, 300, we're doing about 300 Ipsy ambassadors in about 48 cities across the country over the next four or five years. That's amazing. I just think this organization is so wonderful. I mentioned to you, I Facebook lets you do a fundraiser for your birthday, and I chose you guys last year because I really think every Jew needs to know who you are and what you're doing. It is such a worthy cause and so powerful, and many people really appreciate it. It's not easy to teach the next generation, especially in this volatile environment that is really quite an assault on our kids from many angles, no matter, you know, how you look at it. So anyone who is really helping them, and especially on something difficult like this to tackle, it's just incredible. And um, it's going to be wonderful for you in a few weeks when you go there. I actually, when you mentioned these trips, I think that would be a fun trip for anyone to go on and I believe you mentioned that there might be one for rabbis as well down the road. Yes, but well, we were um, uh, we were at an event in Chicago, and shout out to Rabbi Karen out there. I don't remember her last name at this moment, but um, <clears throat> we had a, at a family us event there, a uh, Black Jewish event, and we began to have conversations about um, taking these rabbis and pastors. So we have a separate thing that we'll be taking black pastors on something very similar to our Ipsy ambassadors, right? But um, what we began to talk about with some of our Jewish uh, friends and leadership was about 
doing an Africa and then Israel tour with rabbis and pastors together. So um, that is something that we're working on. It will probably won't launch until uh, sometime early spring 2024. Uh, but um, we began to have that discussion after our organization is discussing it now with some rabbis and some pastors we begin to, uh, to fold in. And yes, uh, it, it's funny when it happened, um, when rabbis, when they heard about our South Africa trip, they had mentioned that they would love to go to an African nation in that way because we may be, it, it, we chose South Africa, but it will always be an African nation as part of our peace initiative and then Israel. So Africa is a huge continent, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Ethiopia, whether it's Rwanda, because there's such a connection with Israel and Africa and, and all of these uh, regions. So um, we were saying that um, the rabbis had asked us about doing something like that. We hadn't considered it in that way before, but now we are actively planning to do a trip in which we take those rabbis and black pastors to Africa and together, whether it's South Africa, whether it's Ethiopia, and we experience that trip together and then probably do the Israel part of it together as well. So this is something, again, that we weren't planning in the beginning, but um, like anything else, once you begin to, to do, do, do the work or kind of execute the vision that you have, it might kind of birth some other initiative. So we are talking about that now, and it'll probably make it more public um, as we get towards the end of this year. And I think it's a wonderful idea, and hopefully um, you'll be able to connect with uh, Tarzan, the, the Mossad agent that, that we even work with here, okay. who really helped to help with the liberation of Sudan over 50 years. I know you, know you guys are uh, trying to coordinate. Hopefully that will happen too. Um, yeah. There is a lot of, con yeah, the Israel and the IDF, they do a lot of things. You know, a lot of times it's, it's veterans, retired veterans of the IDF will go to different places in Africa. They help with agriculture, irrigation. Um, I think it's fair to say Israel knows quite a bit about uh, how to thrive in the desert. And so, um, you know, there's some, there's natural synergy. Really glad that, that you're taking people down there. Yes, um, you're really you're you're really one of the most positive and visible black leaders in America and really the world, mentoring young black men and women and also building bridges between the black and Jewish communities. I've heard many Jewish leaders say that you're literally healing our respective communities with some of the rests that have happened in the last couple of decades. Do you feel you're continuing the work of Martin Luther King and how does your work maybe differ from his? Well, for for me, uh, we don't. I don't have a sense of that. In other words, um, we know that the work that we're doing is important. Not that we're important, but that the work is important. And I again, I, I refer back to when I was at the hotel, when I was at the Western Wall. Um, it was an intensely personal experience, very very deeply spiritual experience there as I felt these things being laid on my heart um, and the um, the inadequacy that I felt at that moment, meaning feeling what I was feeling, having a sense of this enormous Africa, Israel, black Jewish thing, uh, juxtaposed to 
you know, I use that the whole cliche, little old me, how, 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 what am I going to do to address this huge, huge issue? Um, that feeling abides, and I don't mean in a, in a deprecating way. What I, what I do mean is that we, we do the work, we do it as honestly and as, as focused as we can. And there are times when there will be those, whether from the black community, from the Jewish community, who will thank us for what we've shared something they did not know, particularly for our, our Jewish friends who see the, the anti-Semitism, the hatred, and are bombarded in terms of the media and social media and those things. Uh, there are conversations we've had with, with Jewish friends who had tears in their eyes, thanking, them, thanking us for what we're doing. Um, and for us, it's always a humbling thing because uh, we hear that and we, we are appreciative of hearing it. Uh, but uh, don't really have a sense beyond that. In other words, we are, as we would say in our our uh, faith tradition as Christians, we walk by faith and not by sight. So we are uh, attempting to faithfully do the work. Um, and if we see a flash of something here and there uh, of the positivity of that or the positive effects of that, that makes us uh, happy. We're glad to see that. Uh, but in terms of the, a Dr. King, uh, just like for me, whether you're talking about a Martin Luther King or Booker T. Washington or, or, or Julius Rosenwald in terms of the, the Jewish community, these, these, these huge figures, um, another again to borrow from the Christian tradition that were not, were not worthy to unlace their shoes. So for, for me, uh, how we will be seen historically I guess that's for history to see, but do I have a sense of carrying on something like a mantle of Dr. King? Absolutely not. Um, and I say that in all honesty um, for him. It's amazing when I think about it. He was, when he was killed, he was all of 39 years old. He, was, he didn't even see 40. Uh, so for what he did as a young man uh, uh, in terms of the, the fight, you know, against racism, against racial injustice, all those types of things, uh, um, you know, uh, his defense of Israel, his uh, his condemnation of anti-Semitism. Uh, he was as imperfect a man as anyone, right? This is not a deification at all, uh, but that's what's uh, amazing about uh, those quote-unquote heroes, right? Whether they're the biblical ones, right, or the ones in other parts of history that those men and women weren't perfect people, but they they rose to the occasion in that moment. That is what we're hoping that we're doing, Laura. We, are, we hope that what we are doing is rising to the occasion in this moment. I tell young people often, you may be overwhelmed by the bad news and stuff that you hear, but one of the things that will keep you sane is if you're focused on your assignment, whatever your God-given assignment is, whatever he's told you to do, you do that. You do that faithfully. You do that consistently, and that will help you maintain an even keel so that you are making your contribution in the midst of everything else that's going on. And then if we all do that uh, and everyone's playing their part to do something positive, to bring light, uh, then once again and always the darkness will be dispelled. I love that. Really just focusing on your assignment. That makes a lot of sense to me personally and you know, and and I can really just visualize you at the hotel or anywhere else just feeling that mission and that there's one thing you need to do. You don't have to do everything, but you have one thing 
that is your thing to do. And, and with, with all the stress people have, I think that's a really good strategy um, for, for staying grounded because this is very difficult work. I know there's a lot of activists that listen to the show and people get burnt out. It's, it's okay to be, you know, be burnt out sometimes, but it's a long-term game. This is a multi-decade game fighting hatred in, in all of our communities. And um, I really feel, I've said this many times, that um, I think each generation has a unique role in the process, kind of like in a family, the way each each kid has a different role, so to speak. And um, so that, that's one of the reasons I decided to take a turn and start focusing on leadership and also inviting more uh, non-Jewish leaders like yourself to to weigh in because there's no way we can do this by ourselves. Uh, if we could, we would have done it by now. Clearly we can't. And I want to add to that, sometimes I really think people like yourself advocate for the Jewish community, frankly, better than we do for ourselves sometimes. And we could we could learn a lot from you. So... I'd like to go deeper on leadership. In your book, which everybody should read your book, there's a lot of good stuff in there, you you talk a lot about the positive collaboration between blacks and Jews in America from the time of Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald up until the civil rights era to Martin Luther King. But then, you know, the turmoil of the 60s rearranged things a bit as Malcolm X, mm-hmm. the Black Panthers, Louis Farrakhan enter the scene. Can you briefly walk us through that timeline from the perspective of how black and Jewish relations and collaborations have evolved for better or for worse in the last 150 years? Because there are cycles. And so I'm just curious how you could present that. Yeah, you know, the absolute cycles, that's a very good way of putting it. So um, those of us of any age, my age and older, know that the 1960s was a time of redefinition in our entire nation and the world, right? But the most arguably the greatest changes in the United States of America probably have culturally particularly happened in the 1960s on many, many different levels. And one of those had to do with uh, what was then a civil rights movement. People often talk about the 60s, but if you go back to the Montgomery Butts boycott of the 1950s, it's Pretty much the, 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 that modern civil rights movement started around then, which Dr. King became the president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So uh, by the time you get to the 60s, that's why he's seen as an older, quote-unquote, person. Uh, and was even at some point, for the younger ones, like the Eldridge Cleavers of the Black Panthers and the Angela Davises and the Kwame Toure's, who was Stokely Carmichael, they were very impatient with the older guard. Uh, with all the nonviolent struggle, they were more Malcolm X disciples by any means necessary. Of course, the Black Panthers, uh, they began to show a show of force in their uh, uh, quest for self-defense. They are armed uh, with uh, uh, firearms, of course, there in California, starting there, uh, and standing in public places. Uh, and so this was all controversy and all this type of thing. So one of the things that happened was a certain radicalization. And I'm not talking about just in the black community. We're talking about of the the younger generation of Americans, right? You had a lot of disinformation uh, that was being infused into what were otherwise organic movements, right? You had an anti-war movement. You had young people who were concerned about 
our involvement, for example, in Vietnam, but that you also had manipulation of those outside of the United States, like Fidel Castro uh, from Cuba, like the KGB-controlled, I mean, KGB-created Palestine Liberation Organization, for those who aren't aware, and this is all factual, this is not is not a conspiracy theory. The Palestine Liberation Organization was a creation of the Soviet disinformation uh, network, the KGB. And so Yasser Arafat becomes the chairman of the PLO in 1969, though it was formed in 1964. And one of his strategies, to your point, Laura, his first priority was to reach out to the younger, more militant wing of the black civil rights community, right? This is, he does this immediately. It's always ironic. I share oftentimes that Dr. King was killed in 1968. Arafat takes over the PLO in 1969. And the first thing he does, he goes to people like the Black Panthers, right? He and Eldridge Cleaver, as a matter of fact, meet in Algiers, Algeria. And it was at that point that Black, that Eldridge Cleaver began his anti-Zionism uh, speeches, uh, his very anti-Semitic, anti, the whole thing, right? He, this gets fused with his quest for what he saw as liberty and justice, Malcolm X, I don't know what his connection was at all, if, if, if at all, with, with uh, Yasser Arafat, but he got a lot of his anti-Zionist rhetoric, of course, from his mentor, Elijah Muhammad. Now, these things have nothing to do with what's going on with black people in the United States, but this rhetoric, right, uh, that is uh, very obviously anti-Semitic, that is very uh, ultimately just distracting uh, from what would be a, an uplift of, in other words, for those who take issue, it's amazing how Booker T. Washington didn't have a need to demonize Jews or to demonize Zionism to be one of the most important black figures in history and just one of the most important American figures, as with Frederick Douglass and the rest. In other words, these men and women, Ida B. Wells and other ones, were people of great, deep, abiding faith and didn't have a need to bring Jew hatred into any of their causes uh, because there was a complete uh, distraction. And it was, it was foreign to the black organic experience. Yes, you're going to know people are a monolith, right? But all this Jew hatred and then later on Israel hatred, these were things that were pretty much brought in from the outside and made to look as if they were organic. So in the 1960s and when this actually began, and Dr. King's, advocacy both for Israel and his denunciation of anti-Semitism coming towards the end of his life had much to do with some of those negative things that were beginning on the fringes to infiltrate the black community to the point where he began to speak about it publicly. I, I, I welcome those listening mm -hmm. to go to rabbinicalassembly.org. Uh, rabbinicalassembly.org, type in Dr. King, and you'll see a thing, uh, one of the transcripts says the evening with Dr. King, with Martin Luther King, and you'll see his entire conversation with the Rabbinical Assembly, which he was with 10 days before he was killed, March, uh, March 25th, 1968. And among the many things they discuss is what I'm saying now. They're discussing anti-Semitism in the black community. They're talking about the Vietnam War. They said they have a very, very broad discussion that I'm so thankful to those rabbis for recording and keeping it for posterity because, again, 10 days later he was taken. But he denounced anti-Semitism, defended Israel's right to exist, to live in peace, uh, to have secure borders, the whole thing. This, these were the hot-button issues in the late 60s as Israel is being called uh, settler occupiers. They're being, again, accused of stealing land. All these things are beginning 
uh, more and more to infiltrate the civil rights community uh, in ways that it never should have. You raise so many important points, and I want to go deeper into a lot of them. You know, when we were talking about cycles repeating, I think you really set the stage well with the young people were just a little more impatient. And that reminds me of really in a lot of ways what happened in South Africa, a very similar kind of thing where there's the older ones are being more patient, doing things, as you said, Booker T. Washington. I mean, Julius Rosenwald had lots of schools he created. There were fellows that came out of that, a lot of really good things out of those collaborations. But then it just wasn't happening fast enough for some people, and then foreign involvement exploits that youthful impatience. And I I want to ask you, where does the Nation of Islam figure into all of this? And when and how did they start getting a foothold into some of the black church networks? Well, this goes back decades. So, again, Elijah Muhammad, uh, he was not the originator. Uh, there's another, uh, uh, for some reason it's escaping me, the name of the man who preceded him that actually started. There was some controversy as to whether or not that man had any ties to the Nazis. Uh, again, there was controversy. Some say that it was true. Some say there was an FBI uh, 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 guy or whatever. Not Garvey. No, there's another man. He, he, I believe he's of Turkish descent, and I do apologize for not recalling his name at this very moment. Uh, but he was the person that uh, before Elijah Muhammad uh, had something to do with the origins of the Nation of Islam. And there's a lot of, uh, of story where, where a lot of layers where uh, the Nation of Islam was concerned. It wasn't even called the Nation of Islam. Then later on, it was called the Black Muslims. Uh, later on, the name was changed. Um, it uh, ostensibly dealt with the uplift of black people, uh, particularly the black man, but unfortunately had always woven into it a great deal of uh, anti-white racism, right, not just a fighting against hatred, but often, very often, which is what Farrakhan says to this day, the generalization of, right? It's one thing for me to fight against uh, a systemic racism, some sort of, uh, uh, the shared trauma, as you and I talked about before, it's another thing to just demonize an entire ethnic group of people uh, in that struggle, in that fight that actually uh, winds up creating more problems than it ever would solve. Uh, and so you had a lot of that. Um, part of the complexity, however, was that uh, the Nation of Islam, deeply embedded in black communities, uh, doing much positive work, working with the prison population, if there was there, helping reduce recidivism rate. Uh, there's almost no drug use. Uh, this is one of the things we talk about with Malcolm X. He was an, uh, an iconic example of someone who was on drugs and in the street and all these things. And because he would say it himself, the teachings of the nation, his, the mentoring by uh, Elijah Muhammad, uh, and basically cleaned him up. He, they even use that term, cleaned him up. He, he this, this, uh, Basically, the this, this extremely intelligent man that he was, he was able to begin to realize his potential and because of what was poured into him uh, by the Nation of Islam. And this is, all of this is very true. Uh, it was ironically, however, his visit to Mecca uh, when he went and, in his own words, saw Muslims of all different nationalities, his, I mean, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, Middle Eastern, because he had been kind of, quote-unquote, raised to believe that a Muslim, by definition, was a black man, that the nation of Islam was the definition of 
Islam the religion. So when he got to Mecca and he actually experienced a universal Islam, right, and he's making, he's doing, making Hajj there. So for him, it was a, it was a turning point. Uh, and that was only the beginning of it. He began to kind of question some of the other teachings that he got from Elijah Muhammad. Um, and so he began to distance himself uh, from uh, the teachings of Elijah Muhammad. And eventually began to say, I will now speak for myself. He said, I will not say anymore, you know, the, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad says X, Y, and Z. I'm now speaking for myself. Um, so this was, it, it represented on so many different levels because he was probably even more so than Elijah Muhammad, the most powerful member of the Nation of Islam because of his worldwide attention that he had garnered. Um, and to me, my opinion, because he was killed in uh, 1965, I believe it was, um, two years after Kennedy, um, he, his, his distancing from and his willingness to, in his own way, speak truth to power and criticize Elijah Muhammad and what some of the, the Nation of Islam was doing. He talked about some of the uh, illegal stuff or the just un, untoward stuff. I mean, he was, uh, Elijah Muhammad allegedly had gotten girls pregnant and all these types of things, and people were very angry with, uh, with uh, Malcolm X for saying these things. And uh, he also, uh, to this further point, began to publicly talk about the pact that was made between the Nation of Islam and the Nazi Party. He talked about this, mm -hmm. one of the last things, we shared that video on our social media and everything. He talked about the fact that there's meetings that were had, and, and not only the, the, the pact in terms of them dividing parts of the land, that there would be a part of Georgia that would be all black in this segregated place, and the white folks would have the other parts and everything, but he also talked about the, the purposeful attacking of and coming against civil rights leaders, right? So all these things that Mal Malcolm is basically airing the dirty laundry of the Nation of Islam. And so it's causing all kinds of, of, of stirring, obviously, in the black community and others uh, beyond. So this was uh, one of the things that it emphasizes to your question was both the, uh, the impact that the Nation of Islam had in the black community and still does to a certain degree, but also some of those who were not in line with much of what was happening within the nation, uh, those who were disaffected, uh, those who had some substantive accusations as to what was actually going on. So you, you had that as a reality nation. I don't remember exactly the year, but at some point, Louis Farrakhan takes the reins of the Nation of Islam after the death of Elijah Muhammad. Um, and has, you know, I believe sometimes in the, since the 70s, has uh, been the main spokesman and the leader uh, and has doubled down on the anti-Semitism, uh, the hatred for Israel. Um, uh, I pointed out before they have a, what's called a Savior's Day event every year. I believe it's around February or March. And in this last one in Chicago, thousands attend, right, and it's also – uh, it's shown, and you can watch some of the, the events online. Um, one of his surrogates, Farrakhan's surrogates, was defending Louis Farrakhan against uh, charges of anti-Semitism. And in doing so, he also invoked both Adolf Hitler and Henry Ford 
and defended them against anti-Semitism. In other words, he said, just like those men, Hitler and Ford, were quote-unquote falsely accused of anti-Semitism, so Louis Farrakhan is accused of anti-Semitism. So that's the kind of gaslighting, the kind of Jew hatred, and the veneration of Nazis that happens. Again, does not speak for the majority of the black community. Black Americans are not Nazis. Uh, they do not uh, associate or even identify with the Nazi party. But unfortunately, those things get fused with what are sometimes some of the positive things that happen in the black community. That's how convoluted it is and has been for a very long time where the Nation of Islam is concerned. You raised so many important points there. And I think it helps people understand the complexity of Farrakhan. Uh, and it, it, I think it's baffling to a lot of people. How is it that he has gone from the fringe to being so prominent? And, and I think one of the things you touched on is it's not all bad. That's the, the difficult pill to swallow is that there there mm-hmm. is or was good things that the Nation of Islam does. And I, I have to wonder if, you know, it makes me think of the importance of fathers and father figures, because when you describe Malcolm X and others, I mean, that seems like that is the role that's replacing, that, that should come from somewhere else. And, you know, when you look at leadership, we've talked a lot about leadership and the successful transfer of power, Moses to Joshua, David to Solomon. And, you know, sadly, it appears that Louis Farrakhan has been doing a pretty excellent job of training the next generation himself when 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 Linda Sarsour and Tamika Mallory when they did the women's march I immediately saw the connection to the million man march and it's it's just a good marketing technique um and we know they were mentored by them and so you know a person doesn't have to be a good person to be a quote-unquote good leader and so I think that's where it's challenging for people fighting anti-semitism and other hatreds to criticize when you criticize Farrakhan People on of the other side will say, well, they, they're hearing you criticize their father figure that helped them stop doing drugs, doing other things, gave them some discipline. And so, how do we, how do you, how do you untangle that and make some headway and move the needle? Well, it, it's difficult and it's not. Meaning that the difficulty is the intensity around it, but the clarity comes from, again, speaking truth to power. One of the things that we said, and it's not just Louis Farrakhan, any, you can pick any, any person uh, who is controversial like that or any, uh, any issue that is multi-layered, multi-tiered, right? That what you do, what, well, I remember one of my friends was saying this old saying, eat, chew the meat, spit out the bones. Uh, what you do is you very clearly, and again, this has to be done with moral clarity, right? It has to be done with a certain amount of courage. Uh, mm-hmm. You commend someone or something for what they do well, and then you condemn what is bad. And I think that one of the things that our society, as an American society, struggles with them, uh, at this time is a lack of moral courage and a lack of intellectual honesty. In other words, there's so much placating mm-hmm. that goes on, and there's so much you know, evasion that happens. I don't want to hurt this person's feelings, and I don't want to say this the wrong way, and there's nothing wrong with being polite and being concerned about uh, how someone may perceive something, right, being polite in that sense. But if my, my politeness goes to the point where I'm going to lie through my teeth or act like something's not happening, then I'm doing a disservice 
to everyone around me. And so often what gets uh, called um, uh, uh, abrasive or mean uh, is someone really, no matter how nicely they're doing it, telling the truth, right? So back to this point where Louis Farrakhan is concerned, that's why I can sit here and say something like someone encouraging black men and black families to be strong, all that's good all day long. I can listen to a Louis Farrakhan speech, which I've had, you know, sermons, stuff like that from like the, back to the 1990s. I'd be flipping through the channels. I would see him preaching somewhere and maybe 70, 65, 70% of what he said I agree with, right? Because it's about family, it's about this, about the other. And then when he goes off on the whole, the Jewish folk and then all the white people and the white demons and devils, okay. So yeah, for me, and as I said before, uh, as an example, because I was not in need of a father figure, I did not need to swallow everything that he was saying. There was something for me that I had no problem with uh, giving him credit for, okay, I agree with this, that, and the other. And when he said something that was completely foul and out of left field, say, boom, he doesn't speak for me. What I found over the years to be the case, and this goes back to what you were saying about fathers, for those who do not have the ability to do that, right? I knew my father, loved my father, and I don't say that facetiously. I don't say that arrogantly, right? But I mean, I came up in a, a household, in a community, in a church community where black fathers and, and, and men were, was not a, an anomaly, right? This was just what it was. By 1960, the black marriage rate was slightly higher than the white marriage rate in the United States of America, right? That began to deteriorate as you go further into the 60s for lots of different political reasons, which we can get into that today, possibly or not. But so this was for me being born in the late 60s, uh, my wife as well, and the, the church that we came up in, all types of things, we saw black men, right? And our community is no more perfect than anybody else's community, but there was not a situation where I needed a black man to represent a father or morality or direction for me. So for me, Louis Farrakhan was just another person, right? Now, for some people, he's a, he's a almost godlike figure. He's almost a messianic figure. He's just not that for me. Not, I understand what that might mean for someone else who either did not have a father, did not have a father figure, for whom Louis Farrakhan represents some sort of, uh, of, of bridge to a better uh, world and life. I, I understand that. But with full respect for that, that is not going to make me not speak the truth. And not just in terms of whether or not what he's saying anti-Semitic, whether or not it's actually helpful to our community. Someone spewing hatred and poison and all of those things does nothing for the illiteracy rate that's up to the 90 percentile in some of these public schools across the country. It does nothing for the homicide rate. It does nothing to continue to empower black-owned businesses and families. All that does is inject poison into the veins of the community, and that poison then gets spewed out everywhere, and it doesn't really matter whether it's a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi, a skinhead, or whatever, whatever the hatred ideology is there, it will begin to infect everything around it. So I push back with the hatred that it comes from him, like I would with anything mm-hmm. else, because it doesn't help our community. Well said, and, and to me, this really ties back to that survival mentality of rejecting the victimization and, and focusing on the accomplishments and you know when I when you hear Kanye West and Kyrie Irving and Dave Chappelle quote a lot of this stuff with Farrakhan and start to normalize this in the pop culture do you think it's coming from that lack of a father figure and you know I mean some of some of them also I want to acknowledge some of them did change you know like you said Malcolm X he changed and I believe even Elijah Muhammad 
even though he did a lot of crazy things, he, uh, if I understand correctly, he changed by the end. So you started talking about how things changed a bit politically for the black community over time. Can you go deeper on that? So um, each of the people that you know, for example, different. Dave Chappelle, to my knowledge, had his mother, had his father, was raised, very much loved and everything. I, I think that he represents to me some of the celebrities who have been in Farrakhan's orbit for different reasons for a long time. Uh, um, not just celebrities, uh, uh, political figures, uh, of course, celebrities including whether they're rappers, whether they're uh, uh, sports athletes, those types of things. Uh, because, again, Farrakhan's uh, influence grew and grew. Um, for those who know what I'm talking about, you Google the picture between Farrakhan and Barack Obama, 2005. They're standing there right next together at what was either a black caucus event or something. Three years before Barack Obama becomes president, he's meeting with Louis Farrakhan. And this whole – he's a kingmaker where some people are concerned, right? Uh, and that happened over the decades, particularly after, you know, after uh, Malcolm X's death, after Elijah Muhammad's death. Um, and a normalization of of him as a figure. But to the father part of it, what's interesting is that for Kanye West, he offers for us an opportunity. And actually, those are uh, listening, if you go to ibsi.org, we have a substack that's called Africa Israel Weekly, where we write on these types of issues, or Israel, Africa, Black Jewish, different different themes, United Nations, all of these things. And there's one that uh, that I wrote a few months ago after the whole Kanye West thing blew up, all the anti-Semitism and the Candace Owens and everything, and I titled it, Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Kanye, I think I believe it was in his the infamous Drink Champs video. I know he's done more than one, but the one that got the most play. And of the many things that he talked about there, he began to talk about his jealousy for the Jewish community. Um, and I remember seeing that. Um, he said, I'm jealous of their families. I'm jealous of their homes. I'm jealous of their, their wealth, their success, their prosperity, their, the contracts, their, how they do business. He, he, he begins to enumerate the reasons why he says he's jealous of the Jewish community. I underscored that for some people, and, they were, and some people misunderstood and thought I was somehow excusing his anti-Semitism. I said, no, I'm having a real conversation. No, he, what he's saying is hateful. What he's saying is very negative, very poisonous, right? Going DEFCON 3 and all that other kind of stuff, DEFCON 3. But what he was doing was being honest. It's funny because, and I'm not even trying to be funny, you know, in Drink Champs, I, I, didn't see, I haven't seen a lot of the episodes, but the whole point is that you keep drinking. And one thing that drinking does, as we all know, is that it makes you less inhibited. You start to say what you think. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. As sloppily as you may be saying it, right? Whatever I'm really thinking starts to come out once you start putting alcohol in someone, right? If they are more mild, they'll be more mild. If they're more violent, they'll become more violent. Unfortunately, it'll or, or fortunately, whichever one, it begins to kind of you begin to kind of speak your truth, quote unquote. Well, when Kanye was talking about his jealousy, he was being honest, and when he began to enumerate why he was jealous. He was being honest about that. Now, Kanye, I, I don't remember how, exactly how old he is. I don't think he's quite 40. I think I'm old enough to be his father. He, he was raised by his mom. He was estranged from his dad from Chicago. This man was a self-made man at that time, was a billionaire, depending on how you're doing the counting, uh, one of the greatest hip-hop artists of all time, and a fashion mogul, right? 
Kanye was a self-made, very successful man who was filled with envy for the Jews, not simply because of how he perceived the Jewish people in a very monolithic and stereotypical way, obviously, right? But because he could not appreciate who he was, this goes back to our history, if Kanye truly understood the greatness from which he descended, what his ancestors represented, I mean this in a collective sense, I'm not talking about just his particular DNA and who his actual forefather was, I'm talking about mm-hmm. the black soldiers who fought in the Civil War for their own freedom. I'm talking about the black soldiers who fought in the Revolutionary War from the very beginning, even when there was still slavery. They weren't even fighting over slavery at that point. They were fighting for the freedom of this nation. And the soldiers who went on for World War I, World War II, Korean War, those who became leaders in all kinds of different industries, how black people went from decades, from centuries of slavery, another century of Jim Crow segregation, black codes and all those things, still built Black Wall Street, still built Tuskegee Institute, still built the Harlem Renaissance. See, if he understood from where he descended, he would not have de- he would not have descended himself into a hatred of Jews or anyone else. He would be able to hold his head high and his chest out and recognize that, as I say all the time, we descended from superheroes. That would be the brokenness to which I'm speaking. Right? That one of the things that someone standing up with an anti-Semitic agenda, an anti-white or whatever, just fill in the blank, right? One of the ways you're indoctrinating the people listening to you is that they are gullible enough and ignorant enough of their own history and legacy to believe you, right? This is the dangers of victimization. This is the dangers of children, whether it's curriculum in school or whether it's music or whether it's something else on social media, Someone constantly telling that young man or woman, you are the victim, this was stolen from you, these are the people who stole it from you, this is what's owed you, if that's fed into that person 24-7, along with them not really understanding who they are, that person, depending on their personality, is going to become very bitter. They may become just complacently bitter and kind of go on with their lives, or if they're active enough, they may act that thing out and begin to come against the people that they believe have stolen everything like someone told them. Exactly, exactly. And there there really is that formula. It's not just the black community. You know, there's others having this problem, too, where there's a miseducation. People don't know their own history, and they're just ripe for exploitation emotional exploitation. And I, I think that's really what the Soviets and uh, Yasser Arafat did when they targeted vulnerable yeah. black American youth through the, the PLO and the Arab League. And it's really a shame. It's painful to see so much strategy and resources and effort focused on legitimately vulnerable people, yet never mm-hmm. sincerely designed to really help empower them just to exploit them. And there's there's a book I'm sure you've heard of, People Love Dead Jews, uh, we've talked a lot about lately, um, by Dara Horn saying, you know, everyone has sympathy for Jews who perished in the Holocaust, but not so much living Jews that are fighting anti-Semitism today. And I feel like maybe the same is true about young black men sometimes, too. You know, they will rush uh, to George Floyd and people and make heroes and icons of them. But where's all the help for the people who need help before they get to that point. Um, right. You know, that, that, right. that, that just really troubles me that there, it, it feels like there's an industry 
that is really harming both the black and Jewish communities. And it almost feels like they benefit from dividing us because we've always historically gotten along really well. And, you know, if, if it was just people like you and me, we, we still would, <laughs> but, um, but I mean, it, it's intentional. It's intentional. I don't think that even a lot of Jews understand Yasser Arafat and the Soviets. And so this is really important stuff you're talking about that I hope people are hearing. It's, but it's also universal, Lauren, if I could just interject that uh, whether you're talking about the Soviets, the PLO, uh, black Jewish community, the, 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 the type of enmity that people try to attempt to sow, there's something very primal there. Um, and that despotic regimes have tapped into it for for centuries, right? Uh, the way that uh, I, I listen to uh, immigrants to this country who fled communist or despotic, any type of totalitarian regimes, uh, Chinese who fled uh, Mao's China, right, uh, who talk mm-hmm. about how the people, how the young people were weaponized, against the older generation, how poor or working class people were weaponized against rich people because if you were rich, you were by default evil. Um, mm-hmm. If you were Jewish, you were by default evil. Um, if you were a Christian, depending on what part of the world that you were in, the Christian was evil or the Jew was evil uh, or the Muslim was evil, depending on what, right? You can use the, the weaponizing of the other, right, or, or the of, of language. So that is part of uh, what we're talking about here. What I found to be the greatest buffer against that is an individual who knows who he or she is, right, and has that incubator of family, right? The the identity that comes from a home in which because I know who I am, I cannot be used for someone else's um, agenda, right? I, I cannot be told something else about who I am and then have some sort of anger erupt in me so that now I need to go attack or demonize or vilify. Uh, again, I think what we're, we're in, our, in our nation, you have the double-edged sword of a breakdown of families along with this totalitarian thing that's happening, this this hatred for the other, right, the, the, all this racism, whether the anti-Semitism, classism, those types of things, I think it's that, that effort, unfortunately, is growing, and that's what, what we're seeing in our society. I think it's really helpful for people, especially Jews in Israel, to gain a better understanding of these nuances of the American black community and, and the polarization of communities within communities around politics. Um, how how controversial is your message within your own community? And, you know, how are you received? I, I always chuckle when I hear that, that particular question um, because, and it's a legit question. Um, there, there's a, there are two realities. And I tell people, for those who are active on social media, you probably heard it before, let me say it again, that is not real life. Yes, are there some real people who go on social media and say really mean, nasty things? Oh, yes, absolutely. And then there's the bots that do it as well, all types of things. But when you put down social media and you're actually in the real world, uh, the answer to your question, what we do at the Institute for Black Solidarity is where we're talking about authentic black history, we're talking about the synergy, we're talking about black Africa and Israel, those types of things. It's always well received. Um, um, Do we get pushback? 
sure, but a, a small percentage of the time. When we are talking, whether we're talking about controversial things like the anti-Semitism of Elias Farrakhan and the anti-Semitism of a Black Lives Matter, uh, we, we've talked about that as well, uh, that it has a name on one, on its shingle, uh, but at the same time has, done, uh, has been pretty anti-Israel almost from its very beginning. Uh, whether we're talking about those types of controversial things or whether we're talking about the celebratory things uh, that happen both within the communities and, again, we talk uh, there's a strong Africa uh, part of what we do in terms of our advocacy. It is readily received um, and in large part because sometimes, again, these things aren't known. They're not talked about, right, in the media. Uh, and so when they – and we bring all the receipts, as the young people would say – and we show them uh, the the evidence of, of of these things. We talk about the history and then how that's connected to now, uh, all the positives that have happened. Um, it is well received, um, which is why for us, part of our encouragement, like our IFC ambassadors, I couldn't say enough about these men and women who've been on this almost complete nine-month journey now and how excited we are for them to complete that journey in Israel. Uh, and then re- begin their work where they are again from their and they are from California to New Jersey. Um, what they've learned, uh, the intensity of it, um, what they've discovered, things that they never knew about Israel, they never knew about the Jewish community, about the Jewish diaspora, things that they never knew about South Africa and other parts of Africa, things that they didn't know about the black American community in terms of history. I remember one of our early meetings, uh, we started in September, so, uh, maybe October, November, I believe it was, uh, we were having our round table on Zoom. And one of the young ladies who actually is based in South Carolina, she said, Pastor Demisani, I never knew that Black Wall Street was rebuilt until I read your book. She said, I heard about Black Wall Street. I heard about Tulsa. I knew about, she said, and when I learned it, it shifted everything for me. She said, and then when you talked about in your book how the manipulation of it, that I tell you half the story mm-hmm. to manipulate you, right? It's all, it, it would be like telling someone half the story of any Jewish tragedy, right? Tell them half the story of what happened in Egypt, that somehow Pharaoh and the Pharaoh and the slavery, this, that, and the other, and then they, they, and they threw the babies in the Nile and the end. Like, the end? What? Are you kidding me? Well, no, no. That's not the end of the story. The, the end of the, this is why we said when our Jewish brothers and sisters gather around the Seder table, at Passover, it's not to piss and moan about how bad Pharaoh was, how big and bad he was, how mean and ugly Egyptians were. The point of it is that God delivered them from Pharaoh, the whole opening of the Red Sea. What is the Passover narrative you don't tell about the Red Sea? What is the Passover narrative if you don't talk about going into Sinai and receiving the Torah, right? Otherwise, it's just a story of victimization and dispossession, right? So what we found is that when we are bringing this message throughout the community, it is received in that way. Sometimes there's incredulity, right? It's like, oh, my, I didn't know this, I didn't know that. But the overwhelming majority of the time, Laura, it is something that people thank us for. Um, they are challenged in different areas. Um, again, some pushback, again, but never the majority of the things. So that's why we are looking forward to what lies ahead because we found that when people receive the truth, I mean, the, uh, the whole story, if you will, there is a receptivity that's there that most people would never really know or understand. Yeah, powerful stuff. You're really modeling what a good leader does to inspire the next generation. 
What do you think are the traits of good leaders during turbulent times? Well, I, I think the consistency thing. So I was saying earlier that one of the things that keeps us focused and grounded as people, anybody, I don't care what their ethnicity is or whatever, um, is assignment, right? Which is why one of the most difficult things for an individual is to not know what their assignment is, right? And I'm not even talking about uh, in the sense of knowing, you know, for certain what their quote-unquote calling is, right? Many people struggle through life not knowing maybe what their ultimate, why am I here on this earth, right? Obviously, one of the reasons why we, either we as Christians or we as Jews, uh, what, those of us, if we have a, a deep abiding faith, it gives us a certain amount of purpose, right? It gives us a certain amount of direction and everything. Uh, but I'm talking about working and doing what you know. Once you, if you can be among those fortunate people to at least have a sense of what you need to be doing at this season in your life, because seasons change, right? But whatever you're supposed to be doing at this season in your life, that leader, to me, who is aware of what that is, right, and leadership styles are different, right? But for the leader who has a sense of his or her own destiny, not in a myopic way, but, okay, here is what I'm supposed to do. Uh, I was looking at a video um, of, I can't remember the young lady's name right now. Uh, She is actually from Senegal. She's an African entrepreneur. Um, And I'd heard of her before, but I decided that I wanted to look and see her her video, uh, Magate Wade, I just saw something pop up on here, I believe it, I'm saying her name correctly. I, I mentioned her, for those of you who want to Google her, her name, Magate, or Magat, it looks like Magat, Magate uh, Wade is her last name. She did an interview. She did many, many different interviews. I just happened to see one with her and Jordan Peterson, right? And she was talking about um, how she was born in a very poor village in Senegal. Her parents immigrated to Europe, I believe, to Germany, where they made a better life for themselves and everything. And she eventually made herself to America, made her way to America. Um, she started a company. Uh, it, I mean, it blew up. She's making six figures by the time she's in her 20s and the whole thing like that. And this was what was amazing to me, uh, Laura. She, the, of the hour and maybe 45-minute interview, the thing that impacted me the most was her what we call testimony. She's driving on Highway 1 in California. I'm from, from California. As soon as she said it, I, I could see it, right? Those of you who have been there, it's one of the most breathtaking sights. So she's driving in her very, very expensive car uh, in one of the most expensive, you know, areas to live in the country, just loving life and very grateful and everything. And it just, as what happened with her, she immediately got very sad and darkness descended because she thought about all of the poverty and the misery from Senegal, where she's from. And it was so heavy on her that she almost lost control of the steering, right? It's a very, very narrow thing. She had to kind of gather herself and pull over to the side. And you know that as she began to talk about Jordan Peterson, even asked her, why, why, what was that for you? You know, you weren't responsible. You weren't guilty. It wasn't your fault. She said, no, but her thing was that she had an abiding sense that she needed to do something. You know what I call that, Laura? That was her Moses moment. You know, Moses is out there. He's married. He's got kids, right? And he's, he marries Zipporah. He's having, he's having a great time, right? He goes to the burning bush, 
and all of a sudden his world changes because God tells him, yeah, you know, I don't know, you're enjoying yourself, but I have a job for you to do. Or I call her Nehemiah moment. Nehemiah is there in Persia, right? And one of the exiles comes from Jerusalem. Yeah, hey, how's everything going? He'd be like, dude, what do you think how it's going? I mean, it's, it's terrible. Everything's broken down. It's destroyed. There's poverty. There's all kinds of stuff. And the Nehemiah can't even sleep or eat anymore, right? Because as successful as he was, both Moses and Nehemiah, right, they were living their lives. They were not fulfilled because there was a calling on them to bring some sort of redemption to their people. That was their purpose. Yeah. They, for them, they were no longer happy. Food didn't taste good. Life wasn't any happy anymore. They had to do. An effective leader has a sense of what it is that he or she is supposed to do, and they'll do it if no one helps them. They have a sense to do it that if no one else is around them, so when the people come around, they don't change and, and, and become someone different because there's a lot of people in the room now. They're still the same person, but they found other people who are inspired by what it is that they're doing and they want to do it with them. Yeah. What you're saying makes a lot of sense, and I feel like maybe even survivor's guilt is, Related in there, I think I think there are Jews of a certain generation, the 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 two Gs, the the second generation children of Holocaust survivors. I think a lot of them grew up in the shadow of that trauma, but also growing up in so much plenty, and you know having something different. I think that that might be part of that obligation towards social justice on a lot of uh, Jews' parts. But we also have to be careful that we're manifesting it and. In the right way too, uh, yeah. um, uh, for obvious reasons. But um, this is this is wonderful. I wanna, I, I wanna. We have a lightning round. I wanna ask you real quick, if that's okay. But I wanna just return to your book very briefly. Um, can you tell people the name of your book again, and what is the main takeaway you're hoping that readers walk away with? The name of the book is Zionism in the Black Church, um, and it is available on Amazon and all the other different outlets. Uh, so it is a it is a book about history and uh, about uh, culture and all these things. And and much of what I've been sharing here today, uh, I if there's anything I want people to come away with is a is a sense of Black American history and the role that both Zionism, both the ideology, uh, and then obviously in terms of the advocacy has, has played the, the black and Jewish connection, why that synergy has been so important, uh, why it has been so consistent throughout the centuries, right? Um, and in understanding that, understanding some of why the anti-Zionist fight is so strong, uh, one of the next articles that will come up in our substack will be how I think the title of it is how progressive anti-Zionism has sought to exploit the black community, meaning that there is, has been a consistent, and it's, it's only intensifying now, uh, need to take the black historical struggle for justice and connect it to a pro-Palestinian slash anti-Israel ethos and our children in this nation. I mean, children, I'm talking about Americans in these schools are being indoctrinated with this ideology at levels never before seen, um, and it's only increasing. So the book, I want to dispel those myths and truly give uh, real context and history to this Israel's relationship with Africa, the black and Jewish connection, 
why it was so important and why it will be even more important going forward. Absolutely. Your upcoming Substack article sounds amazing, and it's definitely very timely. I'm going to look forward to reading that. What do you wish everyone in the Jewish and black communities would do right now to fight hatred and prejudice? I, if, if nothing else, uh, Laura, we, we, we need to manifest what I was calling, again, that moral courage. Um, many people see what's happening, but they're afraid to speak it out. They're afraid to yeah. name it. They don't want to be either uh, shunned, canceled, you name it, right? Um, I, was, um, I was at a JCRC event in South Jersey, and I've said this before, but it just, I saw the video just recently. Someone had sent me a clip, and I was, um, much like we're doing now, there's a Q&A, uh, and uh, the, the moderator, we talked about everything from Black Lives Matter to Louis Farrakhan, the different things in terms of the black community and that type of thing. And then in the group, and there's a large gathering that was there, mostly Jewish. There were members and leaders of the black American community there as well. We had a great group there. When I began to talk about what we as an organization feel is even the more lethal anti-Semitism of our nation, which is the systemic indoctrination that's happening to our students on these college campuses, and I made the point that just like mm-hmm. we have to have the moral courage to call it out in the black community, I was telling them that the thing, and I've said it before, that these college campuses, they are predominantly controlled by white liberals, and it got really, really quiet in there. So, okay, see, because I'm being honest, right? So we can talk about <laughs> we can talk about Black Lives Matter. We can also talk about the fact that children by the thousands are being told that Israel's an apartheid state and committing genocide present day against the Palestinians in organizations and institutions like UC Irvine. University of Michigan, NYU, and I said, last I checked, the Nation of Islam doesn't control any of those institutions. So until we can be honest about what we are seeing, right, if we're going to call out anti-Semitism, call it out. If we're going to call out injustices, call it out. If we're going to call out injustices, also call out the victimization of those who would use poor and working class black communities for their own political gain and not be concerned with who gets offended by their sacred cow or whatever else is being addressed. I think that both in the black and the Jewish community, like throughout our nation, there has to be a courage and a willingness to speak truth to power, to actually deal with the problem and not with the rhetoric that was the problem or whatever the the reinterpretation by the media. This is where we are now. Are we willing, are we courageous enough to actually deal with the substantive issue and not the game playing that happens on a Twitter or social media. Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking truth to power. And sometimes who is David and Goliath in that power relationship can switch and people have to be able to speak to what is the new, uh, you know, oppressor, which may not be calling itself an oppressor. So um, yeah. now how can people learn more and support your work? Can you give the website one more time? Sure, absolutely. So we are at IBSI, which stands for Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel, IBSI.org. Um, and you can find out more about what we do. We have educational videos that are on there. We have an event page with the updated. We've been doing a lot of events all over the place. Uh, but some of them have become up, come somewhat sporadically, but you can follow us there as well. If you want to receive our newsletter that we send out once or twice a week, 
You can also scroll down on that home page and you can join the emailing address. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization, uh, 501c3, so any uh, donations are tax deductible uh, if they want to give that way as well. And those who want to give, you can also become what we call a legacy builder for as little as I think like $10 a month that they want to just join and have a recurring giving. You can click on that as well. So if you go to donate and you'll see the different campaigns. Uh, we are just, again, less than two weeks away from our Israel trip, but there are still some funds <laughs> that we need uh, to finish off some things. So for those who are interested in wanting to help us do that, just know that your your hard-earned dollars, whether you're from a foundation or, or whether you're an individual, is going to a good cause. Um, we use 100% of what we get uh, in donations for the furtherance of the work, right, to helping with our, our interns, to the, the materials that we uh, actually produced our videos and all those other types of things. So they can go on to the uh, IBSI.org. Our social media is on there as well. So on that same homepage, you'll see mm -hmm. the links for our YouTube page, Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter as well. Well, it's such a good cause, and I fundraised for you myself. So, I mean, I hope people definitely help you out, especially to create more IBSI ambassadors. It's just wonderful stuff. Um, do you have time for the quick lightning round, um, and then we'll we'll wrap up? Um, sure. So, why are you proud to be a Black Christian Zionist? Well, those are titles, but I'm I'm proud because that's who I am. That's my heritage, right? Um, I I understand who I am, what the history of that is, uh, both as a Black American, again, what my family, my forefathers went through, and what they established. So. All of those things give me great pride because of the people who came before me, as well as those who, who shared my, my spiritual faith. So I'm, I'm proud to be numbered among them. Mm -hmm. Who are your spiritual role models? Um, first and foremost, my parents, who are no longer living, David and Lillian Washington. But then I had a couple of mentors, um, men of God who are pastors and leaders, who largely shaped my ministerial life and career. So of other than my parents, those two pastors, one on the East Coast, one on the West Coast. What concerns you most about the present moment in relation to black and Jewish people? Um, I would say, among other things, the level of disinformation that has so infiltrated our society, particularly in our schools and our, our both K-12 as well as, as colleges, um, that much of the narrative is being gleaned from these false uh, uh, things, right? The, the, these libels, the, 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 the people with agendas. Um, uh, I, I know this is a little lightning round, but a quick example, Nakba Day was just celebrated the state capitol the other day, right? For the first time ever in mm -hmm. our nation. Uh, my concern is that those types of things are becoming more and more normalized. Whether they're just demonized Israel and the Jews, but also pit black people against Israel and the Jewish people. And so that's my biggest concern that I see here, those, those narratives taking a hold more and more. Yeah. Uh, what makes you mad? Uh, lies, deceptions. I, the, the thing that probably makes me the most upset is when we talk about leaders, leaders who lack courage, leaders who lack honesty, integrity. No leader is going to be perfect. I say that as a husband, as a father, right? But damn it, at the end of the day, tell the truth. At the end of the day, understand that the position that you hold is much more important than you. So the thing that makes me the most angry is weak, feeble, feckless leaders. Can't stand them. Yeah, ditto. <laughs> for, 
For those who look up to you, what do you want them to remember? I, to the same degree, I want them to to have courage. Courage, and I'm going to say this to the young people, is not the absence of fear. Anybody can be afraid. My God, if your life is in danger, the life of your loved one, any parent who has ever experienced their child in danger or, God forbid, having something happen to them, that's a fear that no one else would, you wouldn't want anyone else to know. So that doesn't mean that that person doesn't have courage. Courage is the willingness to move forward despite your fear. So what I would say to people is that, uh, what I want them to, to know and what I hope to model is that as imperfect a vessel as I am and all those other types of things and as many fears as I have as any other man or woman, that at the end of the day, I still did what was right. I said what was true. And that's what I would want for, for the younger people to, to glean, if anything, is to, at the end of the day, do what's right, speak what's true, even though you may be afraid. Know that courage is defined by your willingness to move forward. Well said, well said. And finally, where do you think things will be in 10 years? What, what, really, what's your dream for both communities? What's your outlook on the future? And are you hopeful? I am in large part, and I, I didn't say this before. Let me say this right now. I don't want to be remiss. I am not discouraged by uh, the state of, if you can, for lack of a better term, the black and Jewish relationship. I, I believe it is as resilient as it has always been. There's a lot of unfortunate things that are happening, uh, amplified by social media, for example. But the black and Jewish communities continue to, to do amazing work together across the country. And like never before, especially with the ushering of the Abraham Accords, you have African nations that are doubling down on their relationship with Israel. So over the next decade, what I expect to see, even though there's a lot of challenges, I mean a lot of challenges that are there, I expect those African nations to continue those amazing relationships with Israel that have already been there, and to see black Americans play a key and recurring role in what is happening in the region as well, something that we are committed to. I believe we're going to see that uh, like like never before, That and that has us very encouraged. I, I'm encouraged about what's coming over this next decade and more. Pastor Dumasani Washington, thank you so much for being with us today. And, you are really a treasure. You're you're a bright light in a lot of dark places, and I think your words are going to inspire a lot of people. Who need, you need to hear a pick-me-up right now, and um, I really hope they follow you. And I want to wish you the best of luck and enjoy your trip in, in Israel. I'm really excited to hear what's, what you'll be doing in the future, and I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Laura, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. And any time, we can connect any time. Well, that's it for this edition of Talking Point. Tune in next time when we'll have Rabbi David Wolpe discussing leadership lessons from King David and perseverance during uncertain times. For Jewish TV Channel, I'm Laura Kessler. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Talking Point on Jewish TV channel, the voice of Jewish communities worldwide. We look forward to seeing you again.